Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Man, I was still pissed, and I'll never forget, Bill Pratt looked at Beatty and said, you better get him calmed down for this weekend. I kind of backed off, <laughs> but that ain't racing. If I'd have been smart about it, I'd have let him sit back down, but I was, yeah. I was really wanting to give him a ride. Eddie's engine was way, way too big. And chaos was a whopper. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And I'm Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, where this is episode 45. So, Adam Petty, this is for you. Oh. <laughs> well, Steve, first of all, it's good to see you back. Last week, I had my good friends Joe and Sandy Estep from Nashville on the show, and Sandy 
had recorded races for years and years and years on VHS. Well, then she undertook this project to transfer those VHS tapes to DVD. And when she and Joe and her daughter and Joe's sister, Jennifer, came up for Adam and Jesse's graduation, Steve, she brought me her entire archive of races. Oh, wow. Almost 200 races. Oh, my goodness. And you talk about, oh, my gosh, it has been so fun to just plug a race into the DVD player and went back to Talladega in 1988. Yeah. And Phil Parsons yeah. won his first and only Winston Cup race. It's been like going back in time. That is absolutely remarkable. That's a very, very worthwhile project on her part, that's for sure. Well, I can tell you this. It's not the only archive that we're going to discuss this week. (laughs) But before we get to that, we're going to run the first of a three-part interview that I did with Ray Evernham. We know Ray as the crew chief for the Rainbow Warriors, Jeff Gordon's just iconic Mm -hmm. Hendrick Motorsports team. But there's so much more to Ray's story, more than just that top-flight elite race team. Well, there's Ray the driver. There's Ray the driver, and we're going to talk about that because he planned his career course in his mind. Indy cars, right? Yeah. Yeah. He was going to run the Indy 500 for Roger Penske. And, you know, that's why he went to work for IROC. Right. We're also going to talk about how Ray was injured Mm -hmm. in a modified crash, I believe, 1991. Yes. And that kind of changed the course of his career. Then we're going to talk about (laughs) how he either quit or got fired <laughs> by Alan Kowicki. And I cannot wait. I cannot wait to get your take on this. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because of your relationship with Alan. And then finally, we are going to discuss right after Ray started at Hendrick Motorsports, he got some bad news. He yeah. got the news that his son, Ray J. Right had been diagnosed with leukemia. And I, I, Steve, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that either. I'm so thankful that none of my kids had to go through any of that or me as a father. It's got to be something that hits you right in the stomach and just takes the breath out of you. Steve, for this second segment that we're going to (laughs) do, talking about archives, I have a friend, Jamie Bishop, and he has been a crew member in NASCAR since the early 1990s, still working to this day as a gas man for a number of different teams. And I got a message from him on Facebook yesterday morning, and it was a stack of old Winston Cup scenes from the early 1990s. Really? Yes. And then I said, well, man, that's awesome. There there was probably maybe 50 issues, enough for a full season or so. Yeah. And then he sent me a second message on Facebook, and this was a stack. This was... Probably, I don't know, I would say probably 150, 200 issues that was in the back of his van. And I sent him a message back and I said, well, did you go ahead and get them? Is this the same stash? And he said, no, this is over and above what I showed you before. Now we're in the hundreds, right? Now we're in two or three hundreds. And then he texted me another couple of photos. (laughs) Oh my, don't tell me. (laughs) All total. He had five huge totefuls of old Winston Cup scenes, and the total that he gave me was approximately 475 issues. Now, let me get this straight. Yes. He found 475 issues of scene from the 90s at a flea market. Yes. 
Now, Steve asked me what the people at the flea market wanted for these newspapers. Okay, what did the people at the flea market want for these papers? 60 bucks. You are kidding me. 60 bucks. The man bought 475 past issues of Scene for $60. For $60, baby. Good. Great. <laughs> that is terrific. And when you do the math, in the early 90s, we had, what, 45 issues a year? Yeah, at least. Then we went, in the late 90s, we went to 50 issues. That's correct. So give or take, you're talking about nine full years. Of raising coverage for 60 bucks. For 60 bucks. That is finding, that's like finding gold. Yes, it is. Mm. And for the second segment, I'm going to talk to Jamie about this find that he had, also about his career. And Steve, finally, this is the big news. Oh, yeah? Ask me what he's going to do with those newspapers. Okay, Rick, what's he going to do with those newspapers? He's given them to us. Really? To offer on Patreon. I'll be darned. I'll be That is just great. This is some pretty doggone good stuff. This should have you folks anxious to go to Patreon. Patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. Give us $5 a month and we will get you hooked up with some NASCAR history. First come, first serve. If you do $10 a month, we'll give you two issues out of this archive. So it's a pretty special offer. It really is. Rick, here's $5. Pick me out one. (laughs) (laughs) Sold. (laughs) Patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. PayPal.me slash the same vault podcast. It will be worth your while. And Steve, we have new support this week from Randy Klein and John Kissel and increased support from our friend and former photographer colleague, Dr. Chuck Yadmark. Hi, boy, Doc. <laughs> Ray, you grew up working with your dad in the family service station up north, and then you raced modifieds. Where did you see your career headed in those early days? Were you going to be a star driver, or was the focus pretty much always on working on the car? What do you mean, was I going to be a star driver? I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I felt like it was. Um, no. Uh, you know, at that time, growing up uh, around, uh, around the gas station with my, uh, my dad and, uh, and his friend uh, Jack Stoddard, we used to go to a lot of the modified races, uh, love the open wheel cars, you know. And back then, it was coupes and sedans and, and stuff like that, and I just always wanted to drive. Those guys were my heroes, and, and I was just going to be a race driver. Didn't really know... Um, that there was a much bigger world outside of, of uh, Northeast modern, Modified Racing and didn't care. It would have been Modifieds and then, uh, you know, I, I worked my way up through street stocks and late models and then the sportsman, you know, we could run kind of a modified car but smaller motor and tires and then finally made the Modified deal. And when I got there, I really got serious about wanting to go IndyCar racing. That's what I wanted to do. You no know, kidding. I, I, I wanted to drive. Uh, I wanted to drive Indy cars, uh, and uh, I still want to drive Indy cars. If, if Roger Penske <laughs> or Chip Ganassi or any of those guys are listening, I'd like you to heard try it here first. Yeah, um, <laughs> still like to do that. But uh, you know, that was my goal. Uh, really, really, my dream was to race at Indianapolis, and um, that's honestly why that I took the job with Roger Penske in the IROC series. At what point did IROC come into the picture? Uh, we were running. Uh, up and down the, the northeast there with the Modifieds, um, and we were doing okay, not not doing great, just didn't have a lot of money, but had uh, had a couple of sponsors, and we were doing okay. 
1983, we won some races and almost won the championship at Wall Stadium. And uh, we were kind of picked the next year to come back and, and win it and do. We were really hitting our stride. And I heard that they were moving the IROC series to Tinton Falls, New Jersey. And I walked in there one day and, and a lady named Barbara Signori was, was in there. And uh, she hired me. And I, I, I told her I wouldn't go racing full time. I'd, I'd, I'd come and work on the IROC cars. And uh, Barbara and Jay Signori were, you know, that, that was quite a day for me because her husband, Jay, became an incredible mentor to me. But I thought the whole time, I'm going to get to Roger Pansky. <laughs> Roger's going to see me drive. This was going to be gonna your connection. He's going to find out who I am. And me and Rick Mears are going to be teammates, and we're just going to oh, win wow. a bunch of races. And, uh, and, uh, but, you know, Jay uh, taught me so much, and he did. They, I did test the IROC cars, which was an honor. I got to be on track with, with Unser and Mears and Andretti and people like that. It was incredible, incredible experience. Uh, but, uh, you know, just didn't get a chance to drive uh, um RP's IndyCar, even even though uh, I straight up asked them one day, it was kind of funny. We were we were traveling somewhere, and I was learning so much that I didn't even know that I, how much I was learning from from Jay and and from from Mr. Pensky. And we uh, we were flying to Michigan one day, and uh, you know Rogers always man he he's on what do you want to do, where you want to be, where you love what you can do, you know. And uh, he said to me, "What do you want to do? What do you want to be in you know in five years?" I said, like to like to be driving your Indy car, and uh, <laughs> and I think Jay was taken back, and even Roger looked at me, he's like, um, well, uh, <laughs> huh? You know, I think that was the first wow. time I've seen him speechless. He said, well, maybe we can do something else. You know, maybe we can get you an ARCA car, we can get you an ASA car, because he knew I was working hard for them, and we were testing the cars. And you know, I I look back on that now and think, geez, he probably saved my life by not <laughs> putting me in Indy car. <laughs> at what point did the shift from actually that goal of driving IndyCar, did it shift towards maybe the mechanical side? Uh, believe it or not, the mechanical side came out of necessity because I, I, I still wanted to race. And um, I stayed at IROC but never got the opportunity to drive Rogers cars, but met a lot of other people. And that got me some sponsorship. And uh, uh, we we had uh, really good success running open-wheel midgets uh, on pavement uh, three-quarter midgets they're kind of different than a, yeah. than a full midget and the modifieds uh and then um they had a series called the dirt asphalt modifieds uh you know so we were actually had three or four good rides had an arc car all set and uh andy petrie called me up and he said hey leo jackson and the guys are going to run this kid for a few races you want to come help him now who was that it was that kid you know i had watched him on uh thursday night thunder at that time so i heard a little bit about him and the news a good kid and it was jeff gordon and we went down and we I've met heard of him yeah he did okay he's doing okay he's still he's still got a few things to do um <laughs> but uh that started it did a few races with jeff and then uh you know the the rest is, is history as they say he and i hit it off immediately and the whole time, the whole time that I worked with Jeff Gordon, I never thought about driving a race car again. Uh, when I left uh, Jeff Gordon and we split up, I started thinking about driving race cars again. You know, so kind <laughs> yeah. of funny, but you know, it'd be like when you're, um, you know, you're you're playing golf with Tiger Woods, you're okay being the ta- the caddy. You know. Now, what year were you hurt? Was that ninety one? Ninety one. So uh, that so was actually. So you had already worked with. I'd already worked with Jeff. Um, okay. Uh, and then I was injured at Flemington, New Jersey. Uh, it was a head injury, and that that pretty much ended my driving career. Or as I thought, you know, it just was. Uh, it, it was time to you know figure out what I was going to do. So I started building some cars and doing some things for other people, and and people were winning in the cars I was building right away. And I thought to myself, 
well, heck, either I build a really good car or I really suck as a driver. You know, one, <laughs> of the, one or the other. But uh, yeah. at that time, when I was really hurt in between and looking for what I was going to do for the rest of my life, um, if I couldn't drive uh, again, and uh, again, I... I I worked really hard to come back and get in the car and won the first night that I got back, but I also knew that I shouldn't have been in the, in the race car. The world was, the world was different. My depth perception was off. I wasn't feeling right still, uh, you know, so again, that concussion syndrome we talk a, a lot about, I probably should not have been in the, in the race car with the, uh, you know, w- with knowing that I had to make a change, uh, it really came in, in, uh, in 91 because it was, uh, I, I had, uh, Ray J was just born and, you know, you had house payments and things. And when you go from making good money driving a race car and, you know, or at that time, you know, good money. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, what am I going to do? You know, uh, yeah. and, you know, you go to the unemployment line and they're like, well, what do you do? Well, I, I make cars go fast, you know, really fast. And they're like, <laughs> uh, we don't have any positions like that. You get hurt in 91. At what time of year? When was that? That now? was uh, Memorial Day weekend, 1991. I guess I got an anniversary. Oh, wow. Up. Okay. Yeah, Memorial Day weekend in Flemington, New Jersey. So were you still dealing with the after effects when you did go to work for Allen? I think um, I think so. Uh, I think I dealt with the after effects for a long, long time. You just don't know. I still have significant memory uh, loss. Uh, my wife says it's selective, but you know, I don't know that that's true. <laughs> I believe that's a common yeah. trait. Con- that's all a male man. thing, right? Yeah. Um, but it, it was uh, it was it was hard to, to understand uh, for a while what you know, because when you have a head injury like that, there are different things that affect it. Whether it's how tired you are, or e- even your diet, you know, rest things like that. I had trouble with depth perception for a long, long time. I do believe it it it, it gets better. Seem to be doing fine now with the you know some of the road racing and stuff that that we're doing. But um, it was quite a change in life because most of the people who know me would tell you that it changed my personality quite a bit. Um, and and uh, it, it's. Uh, I really sympathize with a lot of people that have been dealing with head injuries because it just uh, it changes your relationships with people. It changes the way that your uh, your patience is sometimes with things, you know, up and down. And it just it, it takes some time to get over that. So you're working for Alan Quickie. You go to Daytona, you have some kind of blow up and either you get fired or you quit. Just depend who you talk to. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And you're walking out of the garage and you see Preston Miller standing there from Ford. Yeah. And I always liked Preston. Preston's a good guy. Always, always, uh, always, uh, helped and looked after all the way back to when I helped Dick Johnson and those guys for a few races, uh, when I was at Iraq and, uh, you know, he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going home. He said, uh, to the hotel. I said, no, to New Jersey. I don't have a job. He said, just calm down and come back and see me tomorrow. And I think at that time, you know, Jeff Gordon, because we had worked together, Jeff had a, a great deal at Bill Davis's uh, fast cars, a lot of things like that. But he need, didn't really have a, a good chassis specialist. And he remembered how well we communicated. And I think Jeff and Bill went to Ford and said, hey, we need some help. Can you send Ray over here? And I went uh, um, the next day. I met with Lee Morse and Preston Miller and Bill Davis. And they said, hey, look, we're, we want you to go over to Bill's. What would Ray Everham's life look like today if you had not run into Preston that day? Uh, it's really hard to say, you know, it, it's the same as like, what would Ray Everham's life look like if I hadn't run into the wall at Flemington, <laughs> you know? Um, well, you do have a point. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. You know, I, I really look at, at, uh, at life in a much different way now and think that's why we don't get to write our life story because sometimes we can never write it as good as it would turn out. 
And uh, again, I've been really blessed with that timing of being in the right place at the right time uh, some days, you know, walking out the gate and, and seeing Preston and, you know, uh, just that, that meeting with Jeff when I just needed a few bucks to, to run that, that car and Andy Petrie called and thought of a guy, you know. Um, yeah. And, you know, so all these things, when you look at your life, there's pieces there that push you in a direction and some people fight that direction and other people embrace it. You know, I've always felt like I've, I've, I've had a, I've had a direction, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to go with the flow. Now, if I get pointed in another direction, I'll still work at it a hundred percent, even if it's not, um, what I thought I was going to do. But I, as I said, I have found out that, that, you know, you're, you you are not in really in control of your life and your destiny, but you've got to embrace it and go forward because i I just answered this question at a, at a Hendrick event last night, you know, the, there's no way in the world that you could write out some days as the scenario, you know, a scenario that that's that's perfect for you. So um, I I do think about that. What happened? What would have happened if 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 I didn't see Preston that day, or if I'd have gone home? Yeah, it just uh, you know it, it, it amazes me. But it, I, I'm a firm believer, and everything happens for a reason. You go to work with Jeff at Bill Davis Racing. How long did it take for the two of you to develop a real sense of communication? It was there. You know, it happened immediately. The first day Jeff Gordon and I ever worked together was at Charlotte Motor Speedway in 90 when we did that Pontiac deal with uh, Outback Steakhouse. So we had it. It was like that was magic. You know, from the first day, the the communication and, and respect and trust and all it, it I can't explain why, but it was there. It's always been there. It's there to this day. If Jeff and I were started a project tomorrow, and we've done some projects since we have split up with charity things and rebuilding cars and TV, and it's just there. You know, we could we could not see each other for six months, and boom. You know, it 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 was uncanny um, how he could he'd say something, and I you know I knew what he was talking about, and. Uh, a lot of people, and Jeff Gordon's crew chiefs can, can tell you this, I've never met a person um, in auto racing, and I've worked with uh, Andretti and Foyt and Unser and Earnhardt and Petty, and when they describe a car to you, they can break it down in so many different ways that were easy for me to understand, and, and uh, Jeff and I have had that since day one. So Jeff wins in Atlanta early that season and gets noticed by Rick Hendrick, according to legend. Uh, at what point did you become aware that they were kind of talking oh well you know leading up to atlanta it was pretty cool because we were we remember we were sitting on poles pretty good but we yeah. kept messing race setup and uh, we went and, and tested uh at atlanta and we we hit on some things and i i remember when i wanted to do what i wanted to do with the rear springs in the car you know bill davis and uh uh keith simmons they were like whoa man they can't yeah they, this ain't a modified you can't do that <laughs> did it, man jeff yeah. took off and we were like okay you know as they started to understand, it was just basically stiffed up the back of the car a good bit, put the spoiler up in the air. And, uh, we, but man, for two or three laps, he's dead sideways, you know. Had, <laughs> and then yeah. Yeah, once the tires came in, he would go. And, uh, and yeah, Rick Hendrick, you know, I guess, uh, Jeff went smoking around the outside of Mark Martin with the tires smoking at the old Atlanta. And Rick's like, this guy's going to bust his butt and, and saw his talent. And then found out that Jeff was actually living with Andy Graves at that time who worked at, at Hendrick. So, um, Jeff came to me. And he said, man, um, Rick Hendrick uh, called me. And at that time, if you remember, the Hendrick organization didn't have that great of a reputation. They had all these things, but they'd not, either not won any races in a while or they'd only won race with Ricky Rudd. And this was, 
you know, hearing a lot of of, uh, of negative things. But of course, we were with another manufacturer, so surely they're yeah, going to yeah, talk, yeah. About, you know, negatively. Um, but Jeff got serious about it, and I've always I've had a tremendous amount of faith in Jeff's stepdad, John Bickford. He's always been a great friend and advisor, and he said, "Why don't you guys let's just go check it out?" So Jeff sent me to Hendrick um, to check it out, to see what they had, and to talk to them about the cars and the motors and the people and how the whole deal would be structured. And when I left there, I went to Jeff's house, and I honestly, I looked at him and I said, if we can't win there, we can't win anywhere. I said, I don't know why they're not winning, but it's not because of the stuff the man has and the support they get. I just don't think they're using his stuff right. But if we can't win races and championships there, we can't do it anywhere. And I think that that's when the the conversation got serious. Ray, I don't know how to ask the question, so I'm just going to go ahead and ask it. With everything that you had going on at Bill Davis Racing and the move to Hendrick Motorsports and maybe going with Jeff, maybe not going with Jeff, Ray J was diagnosed with leukemia in July. Yeah, that was a hard one. How how in the world did you get through that? I don't know. Um... You know, again, that was, um, you know, I left, I think, Hendrick right around, uh, I know we won Charlotte, and that might have been my last race at that time with with Bill. That was in October, yeah. Well, no, actually, I was working at Hendrick when we won the October race. That was a trade trade deal, because they they traded Jeff for me. They said, if (laughs) Jeff could test at Hendrick, if I could go and work on the the one car, and we went back and won again. But uh, uh, I just started at Hendrick, and... um, we got a phone call that, that uh, Ray J was sick and that I need to come home. And, uh, you know, finally got my dad to tell me what was what was wrong. And I just remembered being just being floored. I, I, I couldn't even fathom, you know, that, you know, just being on that plane. And, you know, a friend uh, picked me up the airport and took me to the hospital. And, you know, I remember that day the doctor said, your son has leukemia. And to me at that time, that was a death sentence. And, I, and all I could think of was this, you know, like, I felt like like the guy had just ripped my heart out, and, and, you know, and so it was it was a tough time. But I'll tell you, we we um, again family, and that's one thing I give my mom um, a, a lot of credit for. She was a nurse. She said we need to take him to Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, get him out of New Jersey, smaller hospital, not as much experience. Took him up there, um, and the people up there were just incredible. Uh, Dr. Peter Steinhertz was the man who wrote the protocol for Ray J because they hadn't had a lot of experience or survivors of kids. Ray J was one year and one week when he was diagnosed with leukemia. But, uh, you know, I I owe um, those people up there a tremendous amount. They they saved uh, Ray J's life. But the first night in that hospital up there, it was... uh, Man, it was it, it it was almost surreal. It was incredible, and you know, a knock comes on the hospital door, and it was Rick Hendrick. And was it really flew all the way to New York? Oh wow! And uh, uh, to see me and uh, support me and and uh, and my wife Mary at that time, and it, you know, it, so getting through that, uh, Rick flew me back and forth to New York to see Ray J, um, and and really worked around my schedule. Um, he told me if I wanted to take time, leave of absence to, uh, you know, not um, not worry about it. But, you know, I, I don't know, something drove me to go forward. And I think that to avoid the pain of that, it just it just it made me work harder. You know, I didn't want to I didn't want to stop working because I didn't want to have to face uh, what was happening there. So um, I, I don't really feel like I dealt with that uh, in a great in a, in, in a great way. I would probably do things different now. But my former wife, Mary. Ray J's mom is an incredible lady, incredibly strong lady who who handled 
uh, Ray J being sick. She handled me being on the road 250 days a year. And, and uh, so I look at that and think, thank God I was surrounded by really great people because I don't think I would have, I, I could have never made it alone. Steve, our buddy Brian Kelb, follow him on Instagram at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. In the first segment, we talked about Ray Evernham working for Alan Kowicki for a few months in 1991 and 92. And Brian has shirts of Alan's from 1987, very early in his career, before he ever won a cup race. He has a 1992 shirt and a 1993 shirt. Absolutely incredible. In our second segment, we're going to talk about this treasure trove of hundreds of 1990s Winston Cup scenes. And Steve, at that time, NASCAR was obviously going through a huge boom in popularity. So quite a bit of Brian's inventory is from that era. If you want it, (laughs) there's a pretty good chance that Brian has it from the 1990s. And finally, 10% discount, enter scene, S-C-E-N-E, at checkout. So... Follow Brian Kelb on Instagram at Speedway Screens and also check out the inventory, the Koiki t-shirts, the 1990s archive at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. Check it out for sure. You are not going to believe it. So Ray Evernham is working with his dad at the family gas station up in New Jersey, and he begins a driving career. In his mind, he has a goal, and it's not to work for this kid, Jeff Gordon, at Hendrick Motorsports and become a Hall of Fame crew chief. He's going to be a driver, and it wasn't necessarily in NASCAR. No, he was driving modified cars up in the Northeast, and his goal was to move to Indy cars. And And he was going to run the Indianapolis 500 for team owner, Roger Penske. So he didn't have his sights <laughs> set very low. He was not only going to run the Indy 500, he was going to do it for the most successful car owner that event has ever seen. That is setting your goals very, very high if you're a driver. To accomplish this goal, he went to work for IROC and was going to be a mechanic there and was a mechanic there for several years. Actually got to test the cars and went up against some of the sport's very top most drivers, but the Indy 500 thing never did quite work out. No, it didn't. And that was very fortunate for Jeff Gordon and Rick Hendrick. How big a part do you think his head injury played in that transition well, from driver I, yeah. to... It happened in Flemington. Yes. Yeah. And... uh he got in a wreck that was so bad, he actually damaged his brain stem. And by doing that, he lost a lot of his depth perception. And having lost that, that is no condition for a driver to be out on the track in a fast car. Absolutely can't do that. And I think Ray recognized that, and so he decided to take a different turn. Oh, and a good thing about that, the track at Flemington installed foam barriers in every corner to lessen the impact of the cars. Did they really? I did not know that. Yeah. He endures that accident at Flemington in, well, Memorial Day weekend of 1991. And then a little more than a year later, he goes to work for (laughs) Alan (laughs) Koike. And let's just say... (laughs) 
let's just say Ray didn't exactly have a NASCAR Hall of Fame career with Alan Quick. <laughs> I think he started with Alan at late 1991 and yeah. got through about six weeks through the Daytona 500 before he came storming out of the garage area after being fired or quitting Alan. Now, here is the situation. These two did not mix at all. This, this is water and gasoline. It just doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because, number one, Alan was a very hard worker and expected other men to work as hard as he did, especially if they were working for him, which I think Ray did. However, Alan was also a perfectionist. And being a perfectionist, he always scrutinized the work of others, and that included Ray's. And he wasn't only a perfectionist, he was a perfectionist that people do it his way. Exactly. Might not necessarily be the wrong way, might not necessarily be something that wouldn't work, but it had to be Alan's way. It had to be Alan's way because he was entirely on his own. He right. was a driver and an owner, and he could not afford to have anything done that was less than he wanted. The story goes that they get into an argument. I have heard at times that there might have been a push or a shove involved, and whether Ray quit or he got fired, the end result was Ray was headed out of the garage without a job. Right, yeah, absolutely. But then... But then, on the way out of the garage, that day, moments after this big blow-up took place, he meets... Preston Miller, and Preston Miller was one of the big Ford racing executives at the time. Preston asked, you know, hey, how you doing? And Ray tells him, you know, yeah. what had happened. And on the spot, Preston says, hey, check with me on Monday. Yeah. I got something for you. Alan was a Ford driver. Yeah. And, and Preston Miller was a Ford man. What Preston recognized was Ray's talent and his mechanical ability. He thought they could really be put to good use with another Ford team. And that's where he was at the time at trying to find another place in the Ford hierarchy to put Ray to work for another team. Now, what make was Jeff Gordon driving at the time? Guess what? <laughs> he was driving a Ford. Here's what happened. Yeah. Preston went to Bill Davis Racing and that was a Ford team that had, at the time employed Jeff Gordon. And Preston wanted Bill to hire Ray because I think Preston knew that Ray and Jeff Gordon, a lot of people don't know this, had worked together a year yeah. before. Yeah, they'd worked together and in they 1990. Hit it off. They yeah. hit it off. I mean, they, were just, they took to each other right away and seemed to be a cohesive unit as soon as they started. Preston knew this. And Preston said, hey, Bill, you've got to hire this guy. Bill Davis did not want to hire Ray Abraham. So you know what happened? Preston put him on the team anyway, and Ford paid Ray's salary. And the goal was to reunite him with Jeff Gordon because they figured good things would happen. And they were right. Here is a question for you. What might have happened had Ray not run into Preston that day at Daytona? How would the course of NASCAR history be changed? I think it would have taken longer, but I do believe that uh, Jeff Gordon and Ray Ebernham would have hooked up sooner or later. If nothing else, if Ray was not working anywhere at the time that Jeff came on board at Hendrick Motorsports, Jeff knew his capabilities, would have likely said something to Rick Hendrick about his choice for a crew chief, and he might well have said I want Ray Hebernham on this team. And I think that Rick would have listened because Rick knows the value 
of good unity between a driver and his crew chief and hired the man. Well, I think that Jeff had already been politicking to get Ray on board. So I think you're right, because if Ray and Preston had not met up that day on the way out of the garage at Daytona, I think they probably would have met up at some point in the maybe not so distant future. Yeah, it's just taking longer. So Ray comes on board with Bill Davis Racing and Jeff Gordon. Jeff wins the race in Atlanta. He gets noticed by Rick Hendrick. Rick Hendrick, yeah. And Rick Hendrick and Jeff Gordon start talking, and in the process, Jeff sends Ray to Hendrick Motorsports to kind of check things out. Right. That's a natural progression. Yeah. And Ray comes back and says, hey, if we can't win there, we can't win anywhere. Because Hendrick Motorsports had the pieces in place, they just maybe might not have been put in the right order. They had never had that breakout season before. No, but they had everything it took. Yeah. Rick, he recognized, I think, the potential that Jeff and Ray would have together, and they would be able to make the use of everything available to them at Hendrick Motorsports. So the deal is done. Ray goes to work at Hendrick Motorsports, and very shortly after he starts work at Hendrick Motorsports, kind of building the 24 team, there comes news that his son, Ray J, is sick. Steve, in my life, I cannot tell you how many times that I've prayed for my sons, and I've actually said, if something bad happens to this family, let it happen to me. Don't let it happen to my kids. You don't mess with kids. To get that kind of news that his son has leukemia, I cannot imagine what that would have been like. It had to be very, very hard. I've been very fortunate in that uh, uh, cancer has did not strike my kids, and I'm very, very happy about that. Uh, but I know exactly what it's like to deal with cancer. Yeah, I've been, you do. I've been there. Yeah. And I've been very, very fortunate that I got past it. I'm cancer-free. have been for many years right now, so that's very good. But I do recognize the agony and anguish it can cause. Now, I think it's much stronger to deal with when it's your children. So Ray J goes into Sloan Kettering in New York. Ray's first night at the hospital, there's a knock on the door of the room. Mm -hmm. And Steve, it's Rick Hendrick. Right. And he walks in, and he offers Ray all the support that he could possibly need. Fly back and forth between North Carolina and New York. And think what you will about Rick Hendrick. Think what you will about just the vast empire that he's built. But that says a lot about who Rick Hendrick is. And that's not the only time no, that not. something like that has ever happened. No, Rick Hendrick is that type of man. He cares for the people that work for him. He cares for the people that are his family. And so he doesn't do anything but his utmost to help them. I think in that moment, Ray's dedication to that race team solidified even that much more. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that was a good quality heartfelt move on Rick's part. Recognizing that his team owner was behind him all the way, not only professionally, but personally, made a big impact, I think, on Ray. And as you said, he dedicated himself to making that team successful. Hello, I'm Buddy Parrott, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast.
Next up is Jamie Bishop. And Jamie, I got online this morning, not expecting the world to go crazy, but you sent me some pictures online. (laughs) Jamie, I am so impressed by your find that you made this morning at the flea market. Tell me a little bit about it. Well, Rick, I was at the Pickens County Flea Market in Pickens, South Carolina. I had stumbled upon this table, and there was mounds of newspapers. And when I, I thought, well, I'm sure that's National Enquirer, that's, you know, the day Elvis died, or something like that. As I got closer to them, I saw they were Western Cup scenes. First thing went through my head was, I want to find my magazine, because in 1993, they had me as the crewman of the week. Yeah, the photo bio. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, David Green had called and interviewed me on that deal. And I was so proud of it. I mean, so proud of that. When and, and all my buddies, which I'd only been in racing about three years, and all my buddies were like, "How did you do that? I've been in <laughs> racing seventeen years." And never made it. That magazine was sitting on the top, the very it had top. Rusty Wallace and Dale Earnhardt, <laughs> and it it said, yeah. "He's the man," and they're pointing at each other. Yeah. And I, I flipped through the magazine. And I said, um, "You ever heard of this guy right here?" And she goes. Well, yeah, I've heard of him. I'm like, I looked at her, and she looks at me, and I said, that's me. She just flipped out. So I said, well, how, how much are they? And she says, a dollar a piece. There were hundreds of them. <laughs> and I said, okay. I said, I'm going to get this one. And she goes, I said, what do you want for all of them? All of them. Said, all of them. <laughs> yeah. And she says, $60. Well, you wow. know, I didn't even argue with her. You know, I love to haggle, but I didn't say the first word. I was like, yes, ma'am, here you go. You know, and the You weren't going to do an American Pickers and say, well, I'll give you, I'll give you 50. No, I didn't <laughs> want to say that word Frank says. I'm a bundle. <laughs> <laughs> Although it was a nice bundle for them. These ladies were ready to get rid of them. Uh, and the second thing that went through my head was, was you, Rick. Um, I've, I've seen you out there reaching out about a a copy that you may have been missing or something. And, um, that's when I sent you the, the message with the yeah. photographs. Yeah. And, uh, and I was, I was so giddy about my find. How many are there in total? Well, I, I have a, it's funny. I, I bought a 77 quart card, um, you know, ice test today. And I was packing them in that. And there were, there was 140 in there. And that's probably, not half of them. I, I would say there's rough estimates, 400 of these things. And and they were well taken care of. Uh, she, she had told me her brother had bought them. And he was a big NASCAR fan. And he had a huge collection of stuff. She said he sold everything else online except these. And she said he got $25,000 for the other stuff. So I guess now he's got 25060 uh, <laughs> Yeah. You know, getting rid of the scenes. But, um, uh, I was really impressed, that, and they were really impressed with you know how well he had kept his collection. There's a little bit of yellowing around the edges that I don't think you could ever keep from doing, you know, keep that happening. But but as far as tears or mailing labels or anything like that, none of that's on there. That is awesome. Now, Jamie, you and I first met back in 1991. I was working for a small little publication called Dixie Racing News. Yep. And we wound up doing a story on you. At the time, I, w- I was actually working for Chad Little. Okay. Um, 
Right. Fast fever racing. Harry Hyde was the crew chief. So you've been involved in the sport all this time. I have. Yes. Wow. Okay. Now tell us about what you've done. Well, you know, when I went to work with Chad, I mean, I basically just wanted to get into races for free so I could be there, (laughs) be a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, my first few races, uh, Chad's father, Chuck Little, he I said, what do you want me to do? He says, I don't want you to do anything. I said, I want you to watch and figure out what you can do. And I did. I mean, I, I observed and, you know, well, I mean, of course you push the race car and you wax the race car and you do all that kind of stuff. And spent about a half a year there. But I started mid season and then at the end of the year, um, they, the, the team folded and, uh, Kale Yarborough took every one of us that was at fast fever racing to, to work at, uh, it was the Phillips Trop Arctic 66 team at the time. And, uh, I just, I felt like I had gone from, uh, you know, the minor leagues to the major leagues overnight and stayed at Kale's, um, until he closed at the end of 1999, um, working with a lot of good drivers was, was fortunate enough to win Daytona with John Andretti. And people ask me all the time, they were like, what was it like working with Kim? He was great to us. And um, I was actually in college. And I went to him and said, man, I want, to, I want to quit school and just work for you. I said, this is what I want to do. I mean, why go to school? He said, well, boy, if you quit school, you don't have a job here. Did he really? And and Betty Jo uh, kind of uh, said what you know, the same thing he said. And uh, so I finished school. I was a history major and just rocked along just to finish school. I did well, but I, all I wanted to do was get to the racetrack. And, uh, but when in Daytona was, uh, was a dream come true. It's, it's funny when I started this, um, when they, when they interviewed me for that photo bio in Western cup scene in 93, it says five years from now, what do you want? I said, I want a Daytona 500 ring. And, and I kid you not, I sold my soul to the devil. <laughs> to win Daytona. Yeah. And, you know, lo and behold, I win the 400. And I was like, man, that wasn't a deal. I wanted the 500. <laughs> <laughs> and the devil said, well, you didn't specify. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, it, it, I was obsessed with winning the 500. And, you know, 400 was great, but it was like, well, there ain't 500. But looking back on it, it's, it was a major accomplishment for, for somebody like me who I, I didn't work on cars. I mean, I've still never changed oil in a vehicle, and I'm 48 years old. No kidding. Wow. Um, but I learned how to do stuff on a pit stop, and so I, I was fortunate in that, way, in that way. Now, what did you do for the team? Well, I started out, you know, running gas and cleaning the windshield, and, uh, and then in 93, um, when our, our gas man left, and we had a new gas man. Well, then they, they had me hand a second can over the wall. And I did that until he left. And I, I finally got my opportunity to gas in about 97. And, um, you know, I've done, I've done fueling ever since. That is impressive. Now, tell me kind of what you're doing today. I was real fortunate to uh, get the opportunity to go gas the Kodak number four Morgan McClure car. That was a thrill. I mean, I... Uh, you know, you, you try to be professional and you try to you try to put it out of your head. But, man, you go, you see that car coming down pit road. And you go, man, that thing won three Daytona 500s. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't screw up. 
So, uh, but I, I made it there for a year, and um, there was a small Bush Grand National team in uh, Abingdon, the same town that Morgan McClure is, Henderson Motorsports. And um, they asked me to gas their car. And I did, and, uh, you know, I've been there 17 years now or whatever it is. And they don't, you know, they don't run a full schedule, but when they don't run, I go to work. Um, I help the um, Ricky Benton racing. Got some great friends over there. I go with them. And then um, uh, Kenny Strickland, who's the competition director over at Ricky Benton, he said, man, you need to call Chucky for So I call him and he, I said, man, I told him I'm a gas man, and he said, great, man, I need gas man. And I said, well, wait a minute now, I'm 48 years old. He said, man, I don't care. He says, yeah. you know you know what you're doing. So, you know, he sends me to do the ARCA series, and uh, I'm doing an Xfinity car in uh, Michigan as well this weekend. I'm going up there to do Harrison Burton on uh, Friday, and then Saturday, uh, it's the 99 Xfinity car in uh, you know, uh, but you know, my, my home is is more is uh, definitely you know, Henderson Motorsports. Chris Carrier's my crew chief, and he sort of lets me do what I want to do. And you know, I, I just I love doing what I do. And so anyway, I'm going to do it as long as I'm physically able, and and they'll have me. Well, Jamie, you and I were talking, you know, before we started recording, and I didn't know that you collected uniforms and helmets and stuff the way that you do. And some of the pieces that you said that you had are, <laughs> they're NASCAR Hall of Fame worthy. How did you get into that? Well, I mean, you got to go back to the, to when I was a kid. My dad carried me to the World 600 every year from 1979 on. And after the race, I would go down in the pits and I would just pick up lug nuts or a fender or whatever. <laughs> Uh, one yeah. year I walked, I came walking up with, I actually have the wheel that when, when Ern and I think it's the 87 world 600 where Earnhardt wrecked Jeff Bodine and started the big, the big feud. Yeah. Well, I've got the wheel off of Bodine's car. No, you don't. I do. I, unfortunately I cut the rubber part off of it just to have the wheel, you know? Yeah. But I still have that wheel and it, uh, it's, it's so cool. And, and I, walk, I, I come walking up in the grandstands because with that, that wheel, and I had to carry that thing about a mile in the car, and I still got a scar on my hand from it. Do you? But, yeah. But <laughs> the, the point of saying that is, like Harold Kinder, after the race, after every World 600, and probably every race on the circuit, he, he would give his goggles to a kid. Well, I'd get down there, and he was he'd just giving them away, and Anyway, he, he, I got him one year, and I still and I and I got him to autograph it, and that that's the kind of stuff that I just I would just drag stuff home. Well, you know, then um, when I started getting, you know, I had a job and had some money and stuff like that, I would go to auctions and I would purchase you know whatever I could, and um, I, I remember I was I, I was at Clemson going to school and my my, one of my hallmates was from Asheville area. We go and meet Tiny Lund's widow, Wanda. Wanda Lund. I paid her $300 for one of Tiny's driving suits from 1968. The whole backside of it's worn out. Where, and, and they 
Dude, she had, gave me a picture of, of the crew duct taping his uniform together, and wow. I've got that uniform. So, you know, I, I rocked along, and uh, I, one year there was an auction in Greenville, and I we were racing in Phoenix the day the auction went on, but I went over there early, and I, I made a bid on a Kill Yarborough, um, Holly Farms, Pinchman fire suit, and um, I called the people that night from Phoenix, and I said, you know, how'd it go? And they said, well, you got it. No, you did not. I, I did, and I took it to um, I took it to the racetrack next week to Kale, and Kale authenticated it. He signed it for me, and he said, what'd you pay for that thing? I said, I paid $1,000. He said, well, he says, man, them, them fire suits uh, I get made for y'all are about 1800 a piece. I think you've got a pretty good deal. <laughs> I said, well, you know, for, you know, to be a legend, so, you know, it, it, it's pretty amazing. But um, I've always been pretty bold. And, you know, I asked Chad Little one time for, for a helmet. And he was like, you know, he, he kind of blew me off. He was like, nah, whatever. One day we ran short and I think it's the 91 Mellow Yellow 500. Chad gets out of the car and he takes his helmet off and hands it to me. And he goes, Merry Christmas. And then I would, uh, like Rick Mast, who I love dearly and still. Rick uh, Mast. Yes, sir. Okay. What have you got of Rick's? Well, he had a pair. Of, his, I, I told him, I said, man, at the end of the year, once you're driving, you're driving uh, shoes. He said, well, they better not wind up on eBay. <laughs> I said, man, that's, those ain't for sale. And I said, uh, so so he gave them to me and autographed them. And I've got Andretti's fire suit, his gloves, and his shoes that he won the Pepsi 400 in. Um, do you? I do. Uh, I wound up with the suit. Another, another boy that worked there took it. And, you know, years later, he called me up wanting to sell it. So, uh, so I got it. He gave me his shoes not long after the, the 400. Well, then the next next year, we were parked beside him in the garage. He was moving the 43. And I said, man, I've got your, your shoes and your suit. How about your gloves? He <laughs> said, well, I don't wear that company anymore. And uh, <laughs> so he gave me the gloves. So uh, Man, you hustle. Well, you know, you got to ask for this stuff, you know. And yeah. uh, it's a whole lot different back then. Uh, you know, I drug home sheet metal. I've got a whole side, uh, both sides off of a Woody Woodpecker car that uh, Rick drove in '99, and uh, I had I had the whole car that Andretti wrecked in Charlotte in '96, and it sat outside my furniture business, and it was the landmark. I'd be like, "Hey, you turn left where you see the RC8 crash number 98." <laughs> yeah, and um, I finally got I took it to the scrapyard because it was just deteriorating so bad. But one of the coolest things I have is a, a buddy of mine, Raymond Kelly, uh, was the team manager at uh, at Bud Moore's, and he gave me a uh, torque wrench that was given to Bud as the master mechanic for the, I think it was the 1966 Weaverville 250 with uh, Daryl Derringer won that race, and uh, NASCAR gave those torque wrenches away to the winning mechanic or whatever. One of the other coolest pieces I have is I was snooping around the storeroom at Kills one time, and uh, I stumbled upon two signboards. And one of them was Dale Jarrett, Hardy's 29, and one of them was Dick Trickle, 
66 Tropartic. It says Dick Pitt. And I went to Bob Johnson, who was my crew chief at the time, and I said, Bob, can I have these? He looked at me and says, you can have one of them. Pick whichever one you want. And I picked Dick Trickle because at that time, Dale Jarrett had not. Oh, but he, I think yeah. he won one or two races. Yeah. Know? And I thought, well, the real legend here is going to be Dick Trickle, who, in my opinion, is a is Hall of Fame worthy. I mean, I, I, love, I love Dick Trickle. But that's how I acquired this stuff. It's just, uh, you know, asking for it and uh, being bold. And, you know, usually people will give it to you or sell it to you and something like that. You came away from the flea market this morning with two or three, four hundred newspapers. What do you plan to do with them? Well, you know, like I said, when I saw these, I had you in eyes. And the more, you know, more I think about it, I would like to uh, help with the preservation of of our sport. Um, some people want to call it a business. It is a it is show business. I get that, but it will always be a sport to me. I would love to preserve it, and those magazines would just wind up in a box, and I would pull one out every now and then and look at it, and uh, you know, that, I, I, I know me, but I feel like if. <laughs> If we put my brain and your brain together, you know, we might can uh, preserve this stuff for future generations. Are you serious? Let me think first. How about how about I get the newspapers and I offer them up on Patreon? That has been very successful. You know, I came across a box of 1980s Grand National scenes and 1990s. I think it would be fairly popular with the folks on Patreon. Would that be something you'd be okay with? I, like I said, I would uh, I would do anything to preserve, you know, our sport. Wow. And, wow. you know, uh, the only thing I ask about it is I would really, really like an autographed copy of the 1992 Hooters 500 book. <laughs> you, you have a deal. <laughs> I, I, really I can like arrange that. that. I can absolutely uh, arrange that. I'll even throw in the Dale Earnhardt, Dale versus Daytona book. Well, I've already, <laughs> I've already got that. Um, I read that book, the Dale versus Daytona, on a flight to Alaska. And I started that book. <laughs> and it was almost like, it was almost like a piece of cake. <laughs> and you, you, you're eating that cake and you go, I really need to stop. And I, I want to save some for later, but I couldn't. And I, I kept going and going and going until the book was gone, just like that cake was gone. Although um, I didn't feel bad about reading that book, I, I think <laughs> if I had a big piece of cake. But just wait till I tell Steve Wade that you compared my book to a piece of cake. He will have a fit <laughs> over that. <laughs> oh man, it was like a great piece of chocolate cake. And uh, uh, but no, no, I mean I, I'm not just I'm not just uh, patronizing. You. I'm yeah. telling you. It was that you know Dale versus Daytona was so good that I couldn't stop reading it. I would just love to read the the, the Hooters 500, which I I was in that race too as a you know as a crewman. It, it was it was just an amazing day, and I, that's that's why I look forward to reading your book. All right, man. Well, I can arrange that trade, and I'll be happy to do it. Jamie, thank you so so much. I really do think that fans they're going to respond to this, and who knew when we got up this morning that this deal was going to go down like it has. Thank you so much. Well, what was your girlfriend's reaction when you showed up with all of them? 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I, I drove up and she says, uh, what's in the front seat? And I said, just look. And she goes, you know, have you lost your mind? What possessed you to buy those? And I said, and I mean, I'm still giddy, which she don't get it, man, but I'm still giddy. Yeah. Like grinning and I'm like, look what I found. I mean, and she said, you know, she goes, I said, let me tell you the story behind it. And she goes, you know, this story better be that Dale Earnhardt Sr. <laughs> was sitting there at the flea market selling these Winston Cup scenes. <laughs> and I said, no, no. But I, I said, but you know, I said, you see that one on top? I said, I'm in that one. And that was on that that was the omen because that thing was sitting up on top of the stack. And she just, you know, reaches up to check my temperature and she's like, Man, you got she says, You got issues, you got a problem. And I said, Well, I got a plan and that's, you know, to to get in touch with Rick to uh, Oh, so I'm helping you out of a jam is what you're saying. Uh pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Steve, did you happen to catch <laughs> that portion of Jamie's interview where he compares reading Dell versus Daytona to a piece of cake? I just had to kind of shake my head because I knew as soon as you heard that, you were going to have a field day with it. Well, I tell you what, it's probably devil's food cake he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> first come, first serve on these papers. $5 a month on Patreon will get you one. $10 a month on Patreon will get you two, so forth. I have really high hopes for this because this is first-class history. Absolutely. And to our listeners, you have got to participate and get a hold of some of these papers because there may be a lot of them right now, but the day is coming when there won't be any. No, there will not. And that's why what we're doing is so important to preserve these. Absolutely. So, also on iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a written review. Once we get to 100 written reviews, again, I want to remind our listeners, leave us that written review and somebody will receive a copy of every NASCAR book that I have written and every NASCAR book that Steve Wade has written. Which is one. <laughs> How many prints did he go went into? through six printings. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just have to rub that in, don't you? I got you, you six to one. <laughs> Leave us a five-star rating and a written review, and there's a good chance that you might just come away with all these books. Follow us on Twitter, at The Scene Vault, and we'll talk to you next week.